Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the State of the Union is pretty chill edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, feeling very chilly. It's very cold in Washington. Winter has finally arrived. And with it, the annual State of the Union address. And, you know, it's pretty chill. It was pretty chill. Foreign policy's fine. You you know, and even when there are problems, they're just not a big deal. Political rancor. Did you you watch the State of the Union last night? Ben, I followed your lead, and I read it instead. Yeah, it's it's so much faster. It's so so much better. It's so much better. You guys are just not good citizens. I watched the... (laughs) I watched the thing. I watched the Republican response. Okay, I was Sucker. watching like episode six of Making a Murderer, which is making don't me crazy. I don't even want to know that. I was going to watch it on Twitter and just see, but I figured that was actually probably not a great way to actually do the City of the Union. So no, I read it, and it was... I, I, I take your lead on this. It was. I think it was a better experience. It's, you missed the snark, <clears> though. No, no, because I read the write-ups of it, too, and they, they pointed out where all the snark was. I think it actually said applause slash snark in the transcript. Because <laughs> I, I found that I actually not only managed to read the whole State of the Union before the president started giving it, but I managed to tweet in 30 tweets uh, what the president, you know, the, the major points that the president oh. made in the State of the Union uh, within, I mean... There was almost no overlap. I mean, he, he had maybe been speaking by five minutes for five minutes before I was done. You were just out of there. Yeah. And yeah. then I, you know, my evening was free to make fun of people on Twitter, which is, you know, a more too important long thing didn't to listen. Do. Yeah. I have to say that the, uh, that the preload of the text onto Medium definitely does help the live tweeting because you got the quotes already. Oh, everything. yeah. You get, and you get them right. That's the important thing because really in social media, accuracy, accuracy is really what we're after. So, yeah. so, so let's talk about, a, 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 before we get to the show, let's uh-huh. talk about a journalistic ethics question. Oh dear! Okay. Because the Hill newspaper. Why are you looking at me? No, I don't have you're, any you're journalistic the, ethics. You're the working journalist. <laughs> so the Hill newspaper, every time the president gets to a line, a key point in the speech, they tweet out just in the pres. You know, Obama says, and then a quote. Okay. And this is now. An hour after, the, <laughs> right? Because the text is not embargoed until <laughs> delivery. Right. The White House puts it on the internet. So the question is: Should the Hill be saying "just in" about something that has been in for more than that's an hour? That's not about ethics. That's just an editor that needs to be an not editor. Not be telling things that aren't true. I'll tell you what this is. This is a publication that we, you know, respect all my friends who work at the Hill has been having really good tra- high traffic apparently lately. This it's just its traffic generation. It's just, you know. Just in. Breaking news. Yeah. I mean, you know. Earth they, is round. Look, you know, I mean, they're, they're working with what they got, man. They're going to, look, they just are trying in. to Text of up. speech says the same as it did an hour ago. <laughs> just in. Obama reads what he wrote. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's better than live blogging, though. It seems like there's a little more, like, panache to this. Like, the whole live tweeting through events, I just find myself saying, like, I want to tweet, like, shut up, we're all watching it. Do you yeah. know what well, I mean? We're all if, watching if it. If the live <laughs> tweeting is simply, he just said this and he just said that, then I agree with you. But if the live tweeting is live huh. commenting, now that's different. as, for example... I did while I watched yes, the State of the Union yes. live, unlike you two lazy bums. I live tweeted, and I have to say, I'm proud of my live commentary. I'll go back I live and read tweeted your live it tweets. while I read it. I, I was just done <laughs> by the time he gave the speech. Ben is nothing if not a model of efficiency. Yeah. All right. So this week on the show, President Obama delivers his State of the Union address. And Iran delivers <laughs> 10 sailors back to the United States after detaining them very briefly. Uh, we'll talk about both these things, uh, plus objects lessons, of course. Uh, ben, I mean, you, you seem to be the one who is, has 30 tweets at the ready. What were the things that stood out to you uh, uh, in the State of the Union's address, and particularly on, you know, foreign policy, things so, that we talked well, about Well, so here? my absolute favorite part of the, the speech is where the president says, in sequence, climate change is real. Stop mm-hmm. denying that there's climate change. Uh, by the way, even if it's even if you don't believe that, you know, clean energy is really good business. I like that line. I did too. And then give me credit for low oil prices. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, two and, and shouldn't two we? Two dollar gallon gasoline ain't bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and shouldn't we all celebrate this and buy as much gas as right. we want? That, I just that was the lo- weird. The okay, logical yeah. sequence there was just really fun and. Uh, Adorably shameless. Well, yes, that was it's shameless. A, it's he was also, taking credit for everything. It's a good reminder, you know, we Washington pundits treat the State of the Union like a policy address, but it's not. And this year of all years, it's it totally not. not. It's a political speech. And that, uh, that weird intersection that you just pointed out, Ben, doesn't work as a policy matter. It's totally incoherent. But in politics, it works perfectly mm-hmm. because it's it's like, hey, you public, you're paying attention to this stuff. And here's another thing you probably are paying attention to. And it's all great. Right. So I think in the same spirit, his, the way he talked about ISIS was really interesting, mm-hmm. which yeah. was, you know, ISIS is scary and dangerous. But it's not that scary and dangerous. And we're really, we're really powerful. And they don't pose an existential threat. So chill out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought the, there was a sort of underlying theme of chill out in the whole speech. Yeah. It was definitely, actually, this was my first live, live tweet of the speech was this is the reassurance state of the union. It was meant to reassure Americans about the economy and, by the way, push back on the Republican narrative, Mm -hmm. reassure about climate change, reassure about threats to the homeland and the threat from ISIS, um, and reassure about the trajectory that we're on as a country and basically to say, I'm leaving you in good hands and you should give me credit for that. Um, The You know, and... Actually, on the ISIL point, of course, he's right, and this is something that I think a lot of analysts have been hoping that um, they would hear from senior American officials, and it's really hard for anybody but the president to come right out and say, yes, these guys are scary, and they're targeting Americans, and that's worrisome, but they are not an existential threat. They don't threat our nation's existence, and we shouldn't build them up bigger than they need to be. It is an important substantive message. So that reassurance, I think, is both well-grounded and very worthy. 
And it also helps, I think, galvanize political will to do what is necessary to fight ISIS without kind of opening the door to a lot of stuff that's not necessary but that would otherwise be needed right. to make people feel better. If there was a line that sort of stood out to me as, <clears throat> because this is his valedictory, right? So if he wants to leave us with an idea of what American foreign policy is or what you know, in the Obama era, because the point is American leadership in the 21st century is not a choice between ignoring the rest of the world except when we kill terrorists or occupying and rebuilding whatever society is unraveling. Leadership means a wise application of military power and rallying the world behind causes that are right. So does he succeed on his own definition of what is important? I mean, is that does that actually describe what President Obama did in his eight years in office? Or is that an aspiration that he did not Achieve. I, you know, I think that um, I think that what he articulated is what he thinks he did and what he prioritized. But I think number one, the first example that he cites after saying that is Syria, which mm -hmm. I think is not a great example and of policy success on now, its own actually, terms, yeah. or even of wise, proactive approaches by the United States in general. But more than that, I think there were other parts of the speech that revealed more clearly. I think how he interprets that objective that he laid out. And I think that one of the things that really struck me was his language about, you know, the lessons of Iraq and the lessons of Vietnam. And he judges success the way he did when he ran for office in 2008. He got elected to end wars, not start them. Mm -hmm. And by God, he kept us out of another Iraq or Vietnam. That, to me, came through very clearly last night, that for him... That is the marker of success. Yeah. He's proud of it, and he is sticking to it by God. I think that's right. And it was, a for, I mean, I guess in, in, a, in a sense it was nice to see him in this context, you know, lay out what I think has been pretty clearly how he feels, but to say it very emphatically and very clearly and, and to do it in this way. Just, okay, can I, I butt that, though? Because, I, I mean, like, on the one hand, you can admire the consistency of it, the persistence of it in the face of so many pressures in the world and in public opinion. But at the same time, I, I think that the speech and the administration more broadly has justified the, the choices they've made along that road mm. in specific terms that I think really don't stand up well. And there was one line in the speech last night that drove me and many other people, to be sure, crazy by way of justifying, um, which was the Middle East is going through a transformation that will play out for a generation, comma, rooted in conflicts that date back millennia. In other words... Man, these guys have been killing each other for thousands of yeah. years. There is nothing we can yeah. do to fix that problem. And so we are totally justified in having a policy of staying the hell out of it. And that, you know, if that's really how he would explain and justify the choices he's made in Syria, that's not wise. That's not rallying people around what is right. right. That's simply avoiding complication and blaming it on other people, avoiding responsibility for the policy choices you make. And, by the way, it's analytically completely wrong with respect to the Middle East. And, by the way, it was wrong in its day with respect to Bosnia. It's just, it's one of these tropes in American policy that's right. always used to justify an action, and so I found why, it lazy and wrong. <clears throat> so back back when, when, when Tamara was writing her dissertation and we had a, a small, uh, I guess then, 18 or two-year-old, um, uh, Tammy would, 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 would say to the two-year-old, what's mommy's 
uh, dissertation about. And uh, Alicia would say, ancient tribal hatewinds. <laughs> um, yes, that's right. This wrong-headed trope drove me into graduate school. <laughs> so so I, thank you, I, Obama, for reminding thanks, me Obama. why I became a political scientist. <laughs> I actually think there's, there's a, there was another part of the speech that was, <laughs> you know, truly shameful, actually, um, which was the reference to strategic patience and Syria. Uh. So the, the, the relevant t- uh, passage reads, uh, fortunately, there's a smarter approach, a patient and disciplined strategy that uses every element of our national power. It says America will always act alone if necessary to protect our people and our allies. But on issues of global concern, we will mobilize the world to work with us and make sure other countries pull their own weight. That's our approach to conflicts like Syria, where we're partnering with local forces and leading international efforts to help broker, help that broken society pursue a lasting peace. So I was thinking, how would that part of the speech sound if you say happen to be Syrian? Um, and or you, even would, if you happen to do a, a superficial review of the administration's policy toward that issue since its genesis in early 2011. Right. I mean, you, you, so you could say, uh, well, it certainly has been patient and disciplined. I mean, they've, they've sat there patiently and with a lot of discipline, not gotten involved as hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. I, it does, it, I, the idea that it uses every element of our national power seems quite delusional to me. It it's seems so like it true. doesn't use any elements yeah. of our national power. Uh, it says that America will always act. Well, we haven't acted. We've threatened to act a few times, but by and large, we're not acting. Uh, alone if necessary. No, we're not acting with or without. Um, and we're not really mobilizing the world ev- very effectively or making sure that other countries pull their weight. Or so- in fa- and in fact, when Obama did mobilize the world on behalf of his red line, he then pulled the rug out from under the French when they had voted to support military action in response to Assad's use of chemical weapons. I think the fact of the matter is that there's not a single American policy on Syria since 2011 that has stood for more than about nine months. Okay, so so how did this, you've been involved in the interagency process, how does a line like this actually get mm-hmm. into yeah. the speech? I, I mean, it, it, it seems indefensible, and it seems not to describe the Syria that any of us are watching. Well, and how does a line like conflicts that stretch back millennia get into a speech? I mean, to me, both of those things are inexcusable and don't pass the laugh test. And you never want lines in speeches that don't pass the laugh test. But I don't look, these speeches don't go through the interagency. This is, you know, Ben Rhodes and President Obama and maybe a very close circle of of other senior advisors And again, the State of the Union is a political speech, especially in an election year. He's setting up the terms of the Democratic and Republican debate over domestic and foreign policy. And so the test for the speechwriters and the president is, is this plausible in the public debate? Does it set the public debate up the way we want it to? And they consistently believe, and and the politics here has borne them out, that... um, that the public doesn't want foreign entanglements, that the public doesn't want open-ended military engagements. 
And so they have been patient and disciplined and persistent because they think they're, they've got the right side of public opinion here. And they also think it's the right answer for American policy. Right, right. So, you know, he, he says at one point, um, you know, at, at the time that he pivots to, no pun intended, pivots to the foreign policy section of the piece, he uh, he talks about how America is the most powerful country in the world. Full stop. Not even close. I don't remember the exact language, but he is pretty bombastic about it. And I thought there a little was, snarky, even. I thought there was a little bit of a contrast, a weird contrast between, um, you know, the we're we're number one, we're number one, America, fuck yeah. <laughs> on the one hand, and the we're going to be really patient and disciplined and not get involved. On the other hand, I just you know thought those were very odd juxtapositions. Oh, see, I think that was really in the tradition of walk softly and carry a big stick, and I I think that that's the tradition that Obama sees his foreign policy as as part of. So to me, that that wasn't incongruous at all. Um, and you know, I also have to say I appreciated that the president pushed back at length and in detail on the declinism <laughs> thesis. And, you know, maybe he was motivated to do it mostly because it's a Republican talking point, but it's also wrong. America is not in decline. We do have one of the strongest economies in the world right now. Everybody else is still doing much worse. And... Um, and rave reviews from tomorrow it is. <laughs> no, no. We, <laughs> Everyone's we doing much worse. We're growing. We've re- we recovered faster. We've yeah. recovered better. And there are reasons for that that are embedded in the DNA of our free market economy that other countries should learn from. And I appreciate that he articulated yeah. that. On the military side, too, it's not only about reassuring the public. It is a fact that we have the strongest military in the world and that it is capable of doing amazing things. We can argue that maybe there are some amazing things it could have done in certain places and the president chose not to do them. But Americans shouldn't feel like we're on the outs, we're weak, we're, you know, and I think part of what he was doing in the speech is reminding people where America was in the world when he took office, how isolated it was, how many countries had lost their faith in the power of America's example and how he worked to rebuild that and to rebuild the power of the American example. And and that, I think, that part of the speech was not only well-grounded, but I think worked very well. And just, I was jumping off the <clears throat> what's what, what worked well and what was good in the speech, too, and jumping off the American example, it clearly aiming at Donald Trump when he talks about vilification of people because of their religious beliefs or any, or any other convictions that they hold. I mean, I thought that was absolutely worthwhile and necessary for any president to say at this time, in this season, <clears throat> in a debate like that. And that, that worked really, really, really well. I and thought. notable and it was, it was that, subtle enough, and yet you knew what he was talking about. And notable that both he and Nikki Haley um, made that point in different ways. Yeah. So both the Democratic and Republican spokespeople last night made that point. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was the State of the Union and the Republican response to Donald Trump. Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That that was a good tweet there, Ben. Well, look at you, Mr. Tweeter. So I I thought he was quite effective in that part of the the speech, but I think there was a big piece of that that was missing, which is that he didn't say the word Syrian refugees in that discussion. Hmm. And he actually got 
a lot of credit, including something that Tamara uh, retweeted last night, and I know that retweets are not an endorsement, congratulating him for going into a bat for Syrian refugees, but he actually didn't do it. Yeah, the word um, refugee appears once in the entire text. Yes, and it's an in-passing yes. reference. Um, to general to, plight of refugees. To general plight of refugees. But he does say we shouldn't be driven by fear. He says we shouldn't hate Muslims. But, you know, that's could be, you know, in the context in which he said it, it's not clearly about um, anything other than Muslim Americans. And, well, you know, and, I and I think, you know, given the magnitude of what Europe is going through right now and the magnitude of what the Syrian population and the migrant population is going through, it's pretty striking that it didn't show up at all. You know, I wonder if it showed up a little bit implicitly. Number one, in the guests in the first lady's box, because they did have yeah. uh, a refugee whose story had been told in the media. Um, uh, and, you know, somebody that I think also, and this is the other piece, um, somebody who's also kind of a personal example of the line he had in there about uh, immigration and and innovation driving American leadership and driving the American economy. And so people like this, the Syrian refugee who was Michelle Obama's guest, I think, are meant to personify that. So it was implicit, I but suppose. not explicit. It's, it's just that when the president cares about something like, say, Guantanamo, <clears throat> you know, he includes it quite explicitly and he says... Um, you know, I care about this, and that subject, you know, it gets quoted a hundred times, and uh, and I thought it was striking that at the end of the day, he didn't have anything to say about that subject. Um, there was one thing I wanted to mention. The last thing, the last thing, but the it doesn't really relate to foreign policy, but it, it was such a kind of a shockingly candid and. I'm not going to say like self-effacing, but I mean, he really took himself the task at one point, and I was actually surprised to hear him say this. And as he said, uh, most of all, democracy breaks down when the average person feels their voice doesn't matter, that the system is rigged in favor of the rich or the powerful or some special interest. Too many Americans feel that way right now. It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better. I have no doubt a president with the gifts of Lincoln or Reagan or Roosevelt might have better bridged the divide. I guarantee I'll keep trying to do better as I hold this office. That was an astonishing self-criticism, I thought, for somebody who came in pledging to heal the wounds, divide, or unite the, 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 purple the divided. The purple state president. Yeah, yeah, and like both, I think, was a, 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 a confession of, A, his naivete, and B, his inferior skills as a politician to the people who he thinks might have been able to do that. Well, and I mean, particularly was, saying that, that in front of Congress. For him to say that. Yeah, and you know, it's an like, interesting I, point. I couldn't do this. I failed. And I, I, if I had have been a better president, like these guys I revere, or so well, more, it, not better president, but more skillful in these ways, like, I was just shocked that he you know, said that about himself. Okay, so that's, that's the sincere, <laughs> like, wow. that's the sincere interpretation. <laughs> and I, and the, look. It's okay. I think there is something to that, and I think he was kind of saying in front of Congress, look, I know I and my White House have not really done the legislative outreach, and oh, yeah. and you've been disappointed by it the whole time, but now I see the ways in which it held me back, and I regret that. And you're right, that is an admission, and it's powerful, and I hope that, 
you know, it's a little bit moving. He also opened the speech, by the way, with some good bipartisanship, you know, praising Paul Ryan, praising the budget deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I noted that from the very beginning. But the other element of that statement about partisanship and rancor <laughs> is implicitly, you know, if I were Lincoln or Roosevelt, I would be a white guy and maybe you guys wouldn't have been so relentlessly oh, hostile to me from that. the minute I came into office. And, you know, I don't know if that was intentional huh. or maybe it was just subconscious, but that's another way to yeah. look at it, too, because it's interesting. to be fair, even if he had had the most aggressive legislative outreach of any modern president, the Republican Party did come in with a determination to um, stymie. I think True. The, Although I don't I, think it was I, because I, he was a black president. I think the whole this, this whole conversation, including his line on the subject, is very silly. Barack Obama is the third president in a row to come in as the purple state guy who's going to, you know, bridge the divide, right? Clinton was a new kind of Democrat from the South, and he was, you know, gonna, gonna lead from the center. He was, and then Bush, remember he, Bush was a uniter, not a divider, and he was gonna be, he was gonna be. You're saying that we just fall for this over and over again. I do it's remember a Supreme true. Court case right before he came in yeah. that was pretty divided. Yeah. Right, right. But, 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 but yes, but, uniter, but, but not a divider, his, sure. But read his first inaugural. Bush did not come in. His first legislative initiative was, uh, you know, was was no child left behind, which he did with Ted Kennedy. I mean, three presidents in a row have come in very sincerely wanting to be, uh, you know, Bush's whole, he was a compassionate conservative, right? So whose fault is it then? No, so the point is when three presidents in a row entirely sincerely come in wanting to do this, and all, and the, the system just gets more and more fractured and more and more polarized. It suggests that the problem is systemic. And Obama should, should A, stop, which I think he has, over promising that he can be a transformational figure in this regard. And B, stop blaming himself that he can't be a transformational figure because the opportunity isn't really available. Well, and, and he did mention the role of money in politics in the quote that you just read, Shane. And, I have to say, um, the other thing that I was really struck by in terms of American domestic politics this past week was Steve Israel's op-ed in, in the paper after his announcement that he was retiring from Congress about fundraising and Congress and the way in which the need to raise vast sums of money has just completely altered the functioning of Congress and, the, and what representatives do every day to the detriment of American democracy. And... I, it was a fascinating and depressing read, and also kind of funny. He's a funny guy. Who knew? Huh. Okay. Well, that, that's our last State of the Union analysis of Barack Obama. Yeah. And, boy, we did a lot of navel-gazing We did. Of now, America. Now, this... now we're going to have the next one by Donald Trump. Yeah. Get ready for that. It's going to be huge. It'll be huge. It'll be the best ever. Tremendous. It'll be the most tremendous and the shortest, hopefully. Um, Tamara. Iran was just intent on upstaging President Obama's last speech, capturing 10 sailors. Or not. In the Persian Gulf. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Were they prisoners? Were they guests? I, I actually think this is a really, really interesting contrast to the last time that Iran captured American sailors at sea in the Persian Gulf. Um, there was 
tr last time, we, and I can't remember the year, um, there was fierce rhetoric on both sides. There was accusations of spying. There was tremendous uncertainty about their treatment and about when, when and if they would be released. Um, and it was extremely dodgy and delicate. And so immediately when the news broke yesterday, um, late afternoon, that these American sailors in their boats had reportedly somehow drifted into Iranian territorial waters um, and were picked up by Iran, you know, it got spun up into, oh, my goodness, this is a major crisis. And what's remarkable to me about this is how thoroughly it was not. Um, that it, that this time the Iranians did what normal responsible states do when these things happen, um, which is they released them and their boats uh, within about 12 hours but back was... to American back to American hands. And yes, you know there were worries about were they being well treated. They pictures were shown of them without their shoes, which made the U.S. government worried that they had been required to turn over their dog tags or other identifying information that they, sh you know, one should not have to provide. Of course, you have to worry about the Iranians gathering intelligence from having the ships and and the soldiers and the sailors in custody. But what's remarkable is how uh, normally this was handled. And I will not say that this is a mark of the transformation of the U.S.-Iranian relationship, which is still hostile, and this is still a country with whom the United States doesn't have normal diplomatic relations, and the Iranians are doing all kinds of horrible things all over the Middle East um, at the same time. But it was the crisis that wasn't, uh, and that says to me that whatever else the Iranians are doing, they do value the potential for a different kind of relationship with the United States, and they want to preserve it. And that, my friend is leverage. What do you make of the fact that it, it it appears that one of these sailors apologized on camera, said, you know, this is our fault, we were in the wrong. There's some question about whether he was coerced into saying that. There's some question about whether or not uh, uh, he, he should have said it at all if he weren't coerced. I mean, I'm curious what you make of that, and also the fact, you know, it, does Iran then exploit that for propaganda purposes? And like, Ben, what are the international law implications of that. You're not supposed to exploit detainees for for these kinds of Right, but of soldiers are also supposed to resist <clears throat> saying yeah, anything other than name, rank, and serial number, right? Yeah. Well, but, this got brought up in Bergdahl's situation. Right, you know, but, but these are not, these the are not prisoners of war. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't actually know what the rules are in this situation. What are honestly. they, detainees? What are they... Um, I, you know, it's an interesting... Way. There, there, there's not an armed conflict. There's... Um, I think it's a uh, it's a U.S. sovereign ship that strays into Iranian waters. Mm -hmm. It's not a hostile act, but as a but as a uh, matter of sovereign sovereignty protection, I think the country uh, is allowed to you know verify that it's not a, a hostile act, and so. Uh, you know, once you realize it's an accident, I think you're supposed to let people go and, and let people go on their way. And that seems to be what happened here. So it seems to have largely proceeded on a sort of professional basis. Uh, you'd like to, you know, this sort of thing isn't that uncommon in congested, uh, traffic regions of, 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 of waters. Um, 
Because we don't know for sure that these U.S. ships were in Iranian territorial waters. The Iranians claim they were. But I don't think the United States government no, has verified No, no, it has. It, it has. It has. And it, uh, the only question has been whether there was an apology. Um, I see. And, By the sailor. Uh, right. Um, and so, you know, the other, the other question, I think, is whether this would have played as smoothly as it did had it been a few weeks from now after the implementation date of the nuclear deal and whether whether the leverage that you're describing, which clearly seems to have operated here, is the kind of very short-term leverage mm-hmm. that comes from not wanting to derail... Sanctions relief. The, the sanctions yeah. relief. That's, you know, that's a worthy point, Ben, and um, I suspect there will be other ways of testing that hypothesis um, after implementation day, but you're absolutely right that this is, this in particular, this period when... Um, Iran has, you know, shipped fuel out of the country. It has dismantled the core of the Iraq, um, uh, you know, uh, reactor that was facility, facility that was, uh, um, and, and so they've done a lot of their part, but they haven't got the goodies yet. So maybe this is kind of maximum leverage in this particular moment. Uh, you know, and, and the, the question here, the bigger question, I think at stake between um, defenders of the Iran deal and critics of the deal, the, the sort of international relations question at stake is how much do relationships matter over time and mm-hmm. how much are these things really just about transactions and relative uh, power and leverage? You know, to what extent is the fact that uh, John Kerry and Javad Zarif built up this relationship over all these months of negotiation, to what extent did that help them uh, resolve this particular incident so smoothly and, as you say, professionally, Bennett. I, I just want to point out that if the world is dependent for regional security in this area on the personality of John Kerry, uh, that would not be yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> such a cynic. I'm sorry. Such a cynic, Ben. I called my good friend. <laughs> That's pretty good. You like that? Yeah. We do it a lot at home. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of John Kerry impressions <laughs> going on in Bloomingdale. Uh, all right, well, let's move on to object lessons, shall we? Um, I, I want you to go last, Ben, because I know what yours is. Tamara, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, my object is a little bit mundane, but it's also a little bit of a, a, a mechanism to give you a program note. It's my passport. Oh. Um, Don't show anyone the inside of it. <laughs> I will not show anyone the identifying information contained therein. However, it is a heads up because I think over the last month and a half, I've been here for the podcast probably for a longer stretch than I have almost since we started. Right, yeah. Because um, I haven't around. been traveling, but next week I'm on the road again. <laughs> on the road again. So uh, I'm headed off to Israel. Um, and there again? <laughs> you know, it's it's a really interesting place, and there are lots of interesting things to learn. I you seem like in an apartment there or something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that would be awesome. A pied terre. Um, I don't think I could afford even like the tiniest <laughs> studio anywhere in Municipal Tel Aviv. But anyway, uh, I'll be there for a set of briefings and um, the internet, the Institute for National Security Studies annual conference. So it'll be a security focused trip, and I will see you guys in about a week. And you'll eat very good food. Mm. And we will have a special guest next week. 
Yeah, we're not revealing that person yet, though. <laughs> because we don't know who it is. <laughs> don't tell them that. Don't tell them. It's <laughs> a secret. Um, so my object comes courtesy of a loyal listener who asked that uh, he not be identified. <clears throat> um, do you guys remember that that terrible song? Well, maybe that's terrible. Maybe not terrible. That terrible song by the band Deep Blue Something, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And no. I said, what about Breakfast, Breakfast at, at Tiffany's? That incredibly yeah. repetitive yeah, yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know yeah, that yeah, song. Yeah. Okay, remember that song? All right. So one of our listeners, I guess, because he has nothing better to do after he stopped listening to the podcast, <laughs> um, decided to um, write what I think are delightful lyrics um, to go along with this. And the first part is... The, the, A song uh, about us? No, 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 no. Oh. I wish it were about oh. us. But maybe he'll write one about us for next week, because I know he's listening. Wouldn't this be the week if he didn't listen? Oh, man. You know. Somebody needs to write the rational security song. Yeah. Right. So uh, the first part of the song, before we get to the chorus, is Iran says, we've got nothing in common, no common ground to start from, and we're falling apart. <laughs> Iran says, the world has come between us, our religions come between us. Oh, this is, by the way, I think they're singing to, yeah, hold on, uh, 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 to Saudi Arabia. Our religions come between us until I know Iran just don't care. And I said, what about ISIL in Iraq? Iran said, I think I remember the group. And as I recall, I think we both kind of hated it. And I said, well, that's one thing we've got. Awesome. Oh, that is awesome. That was good. That was really good. I thought that was just, you know, absolutely delightful. Iran's little, uh, uh, you know. Outreach. Outreach. It's, 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 uh, it's well, owed to Saudi got. Arabia. We both hate ISIS. We both ISIS. hate ISIS. That was good. And it goes on and on, but, um, I, I'll post some of the lyrics uh, for the object lesson, but I just thought that was wonderful. It was excellent. Thank yeah. you, multifaceted listeners. There's, wow, there's, not, there's not enough song composition associated with this podcast. Well, yeah. and I would like to say we have a very talented listener base. We sure do. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Send us more. Send us more of that stuff. All right. Uh, ben, you well, have brought a... So our, we actually have a sponsor this week. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> Rational Security <laughs> is brought to you this week by uh, a Russian perfume designer who has a new uh, perfume, uh, cologne, inspired by Vladimir Putin. Here's Reuters on the subject. <laughs> The fragrance, called Leaders Number One, comes in a sleek black glass bottle and a 6,500 ruble price tag, which is about 95 U.S. dollars. The scent, which creator Vladislav Rekunov hopes to present to the leader himself, contains hints of lemon, black currant, and fir cones. The composition was designed to be warm and well-rounded, and I would call it uniting. So it's not an aggressive scent, rather it's attractive, matter-of-fact, and natural. Yes, uh, Rational Security is brought to you this week by Leaders Number 1, the new cologne inspired by Vladimir Putin. It's Uniting my object scent. lesson. Uniting scent. Uniting, He's a uniter, uniting not a I just want to point out he has not responded to my fight request. Well, maybe you need to buy some leaders number yeah, one. Yeah, and wear it to to lure him in. Yeah, I, with pheromones. I, yeah. All right, I'm can, gonna I'm gonna buy some leaders number one, and Putin will not be able to resist. Can we, by the way, establish just to all agree? I don't think that Vladimir Putin would respect a warm, uniting scent. I don't think he would <laughs> want an aggressive scent. And also, Musk. Just, to, just to go back to the, this perf, this alleged perfume designer. Who designs an aggressive scent? Like, <laughs> <laughs> he 
It smells like what? Bug repellent? No, it smells like gym bag. <laughs> like, what's glove. the market for this? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Uh, but cones. hey, but for thank cones. you for sponsoring the podcast. <laughs> thank you, leader number one, I thank think. Thank you, leaders one. It's great. I'm wearing some now. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to past shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and comments. It really helps us out. And thanks again for uh, for writing in, for writing songs for us, uh, for doing all the great things that you do. If you want to write a design a perfume in our Ooh, honor. Yeah. A rational security perfume. Exactly. I, th- I think in Shane's honor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh definitely. I'll wear it. You're so dapper Shane. already. I just I just bought some new cologne this week, so I'm in the mood. There you go. I am a I am acquisitive of scent. <laughs> uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our mu- music was performed this week by Deep Blue Isis. Mm. No. no. <laughs> not did. not your best. Not my best. <laughs> no. That's, that could be a credible band name. It could be. Deep Maybe. Blue Isis. It's like Gary Kasparov. And what the... if it's Deep Blue Eyes is? <laughs> All right. That's a little better. <laughs> All right. That'll be quite enough. <laughs> Our podcast is, of course, performed by Sophia Yan, who we both, oh, we all got to see last week. Yeah. And I informed her by that we mentioned her at the end of every podcast, and she's like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe she's just listening to the top of the podcast. That's fine. Uh, on behalf of my friends Mark Hoffman Woodis and Ben Woodis, we will see you next week with a special guest. Bye-bye. 